You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. You see in our text that we have quite a bit of movement. We have several characters come onto the stage and then exit stage right. People come in and you see them for a little while and then eventually they leave or Paul moves on to another place or another interaction and you see various things occurring. But here's what you see over and over again. There is a standard. There is something that needs to happen for everything to be considered good, okay, appropriate, right. There is something that needs to happen. And it turns out the first thing that happens is the most accurate. It's almost as if the first story sets for us the standard, the plumb line. And then the next three accounts show us ways in which people have gone wrong or gone astray, the ways that they don't match up to the plumb line. They're not straight as a ruler. And so it is necessary for there to be some sort of correction, some sort of thing brought in to bring everybody in line. But the story begins with a man, not Paul, but a man named Apollos. Apollos. Apollos was a man from Alexandria, which is part of Egypt. And in Alexandria, it was well known for its, uh, its study, its, its library, its scholasticism, its ability to train up people in writing, which wasn't common. It wasn't, not everybody was able to write. To train them up in writing and reading and transcribing books. The Library of Alexandria was famous. In fact, you probably have heard of the Library of Alexandria and the great catastrophe that it burned down. The Library of Alexandria in Egypt was the, was the monument of education in the first century world. Yes, Athens had philosophy, but Alexandria had real good book learning. And Apollos was an Alexandrian. He comes from this area of, of Egypt, or perhaps he just he grew up somewhere else and went down to Alexandria when he was about college age, and he studied there for a number of years. But he was so efficient, he was such a good student, he was so intelligent and capable that after he left Alexandria, he went up to Ephesus. Now again, if you write in the margin a, a, a code word or, or what Ephesus is like or what Corinth is like, for Ephesus, you can put D.C., Washington, D.C., or perhaps New York. Ephesus was a place of thriving people. It was the third, perhaps fourth largest city in the first century world. That, that means like Rome, some other city, Ephesus, right? The third or the fourth largest city, and it was a hub of importation so that people would bring all of their goods here. That's why it's kind of like New York, right? They would bring all of their goods here. But the other thing about it was that everybody here was intelligent, was well-to-do. They knew what they were getting themselves into. They were people that you might respect or honor. And so Apollos, who has graduated, if you want to call it that, from Alexandria, comes up Africa into Asia. 
and he spent some time in the city of Ephesus. And Apollos is good at what he does. Apollos is so persuasive that he's able to talk to these people and he's able to tell them about Jesus and they believe, they hear his logic and they're like, there's no way that I can defend against that argument. There's no way that I can, I can believe otherwise than what Apollos has just told me. You might think of, of a silver-tongued salesman or you might think of, uh, of somebody who, who, has, who has logic and has been, able, has been trained. You might, you might think of somebody who's, be able, who's able to, to communicate and persuade you to the truth or to persuade you to whatever else he wants. You might think of a time you got swindled uh, by the perfume man in the shopping center who sprayed the scent and made you smell it and, and, you're, and it just makes you want to buy whatever they're proffering. Apollos was that good. Now, you don't think you need that perfume, but Apollos would convince you otherwise. The difference is Apollos wasn't selling perfume. Apollos was talking about Jesus. He was talking about Jesus so persuasively that the Jews would hear what he said and say, oh yeah, that makes sense. I could see how the child promised to Adam and Eve would be Jesus. Oh yeah, that makes sense. I could see how Jesus is like another Moses. I mean, he even walked on the sea for crying out loud. He even brought miracles, bread down for people to eat. He led the people through a kind of exodus. Oh yeah, I could see how Jesus is the heir, the true heir to King David. In fact, doesn't it say that a, a shoot will rise out of Jesse's tree? That the tree that was thought dead, that was cut off, the tree of David, would one day bring life once again? Yeah, I could see that being Jesus. He could be a new king, and a king of a different kind, the king that we were always supposed to have. Apollos was able to show the Jews everything about the Old Testament, everything about the Torah, everything about the law and the prophets, and how Jesus came to fulfill that. But there was a slight problem. There were some things that Apollos didn't know yet. You see, he'd been in Alexandria for so much time that he probably, the last time he was in Jerusalem, was when he got baptized by John. And if you remember the John the Baptist, John the Baptist came and he was eating locusts and eating honey and he was wearing camel's hair in the, in the wilderness and he was, a real, he was a real wild card. But he came and he said, repent, repent. The ax is already laid at the tree. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And he would baptize people in the Jordan River. And it was a baptism of repentance. Until one day he saw Jesus and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. There is someone coming after me that is greater than me, whose shoe I'm not fit to untie. And that person was Jesus. But Apollos, he knew about Jesus. He knew that, Paul, that, he knew that John had told about Jesus. He knew that Jesus had lived a life and he knew John's baptism of repentance was the way to begin that life. 
But it seems, at least perhaps in part, that Apollos didn't know about Jesus' death and resurrection. If all that Apollos had was a baptism of repentance, a baptism of changing your direction from one way to the next, if that's all that Apollos knew, then he knew that he should walk in the way of Jesus. He knew that Jesus was a shepherd guiding the path, but he didn't know that Jesus had already accomplished everything for him. He didn't know that all of his sins had been taken care of and thrown into the deepest ocean. He didn't know that Jesus had resurrected from the dead, that he lived again, and that he bestowed that righteousness upon all who would believe. So Apollos, he knew Jesus, and he believed, but he didn't know the whole story. So Priscilla and Aquila, again, not Paul, but Priscilla and Aquila, the woman and her husband, teach Apollos. They guide him in the way a little more accurately. Yes, you know about the baptism of John. You know about the baptism of repentance. You know to change your way and to walk in the path that he sets. But did you know that he already accomplished everything for you? Did you know that he's ascended to the right hand of the Father and that he rules from there as king over the whole earth? Did you know? And so Apollos hears their teaching and he receives it. And he corrects his ways. And he continues to teach and to persuade and to go about teaching about Jesus. And so, having received what he has from Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus, he moves on to a place called Achaia or Ephesus. Sorry, or, or Corinth. That's our standard. So if you think to yourself, okay, what is the standard? Or how am I to evaluate the next three events? Here's what you know. There was a baptism of repentance. There was a man named Jesus. In fact, Apollos is speaking so fervently that it seems as though he even has the Holy Spirit. There's a spirit involved being able to convince or to persuade, or that there's a mission, that there's a Messiah who has sent us on a task. You might as well say, since Apollos was talking about how Jesus is the Messiah, that he recognizes and approves of everything God has done in the past. That everything the Father did in the Old Testament still stands today. And in fact, you might remember, that's part of what happened last week. In the event with the, with the judge, with, with the magistrate on the stone table, he said, essentially, the Christians are just Jews. But now, we're getting a picture of what just Jews means versus Christians. Christians hold that there is a God, a Father, who did things in the past, but that he sent his son Jesus to guide us now so that we could see what the whole Old Testament is about so that we could see the point and the purpose of everything that he did. He sent us Jesus. And Jesus, after he lived a life, a perfect life, he died on the cross for your sins so that all who believe could become children of God. And after he raised from the dead, he sent his Holy Spirit so that all who believe would be empowered by the very power of God. So repent and believe. Be baptized in the name of Jesus. 
That's what Apollos believed. And he goes off to Corinth to continue to teach. Now, Paul. Paul comes down to Ephesus. After he's gone all through the northern part in Galatia and Phrygia, he comes all the way down to Ephesus, the place that wanted him to stay last time, the place where he left Priscilla and Aquila, some of his most trusted associates by now, the place where he knew that he wanted to spend the next year or so of ministry or however long God willed it. And here's what happens. I'm in the wrong section. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Here's our first test case. Is it possible... Remember our first question, what is necessary for salvation? Is it possible to have salvation without the Holy Spirit? Is it possible to have never been given God's presence and to still have something that we want to loosely call, vaguely call salvation? Can it be true? Paul's first question, when he finds disciples here in Ephesus that appear to be following Jesus, following after the way of Jesus, doing things that they ought to do, he says, first question that the text gives us, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And I wonder now if that question bites at you a little bit. Did I receive the Holy Spirit? And what is their answer? No. The Holy Spirit? We've never heard of the guy. The Holy Spirit? No. What's the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit, are you talking about like my spirit, my soul is sort of like purified and become holy? The Holy Spirit, I've never even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. And what is Paul's response? He doesn't say to them, oh, okay, that's, that'll come later. Oh, you're, you're all right. Just keep walking on the path, and it'll happen eventually. No. What does Paul say? Or what do they say first, I guess? Paul says, into what then were you baptized? And their response, remarkably similar to Apollos. Their response, into John's baptism. After all, that's the only baptism that Apollos knew. That's probably who Apollos was baptizing them in. Follow after John the Baptist. But Apollos knows better now, but he's not here anymore. These disciples have continued to live their life after having received a baptism from Apollos, after having gone and knowing that there's some sort of Messiah, some sort of Savior named Jesus, and they're supposed to follow after him, and they're supposed to do right things, but perhaps they haven't been joined into a community. Perhaps they haven't been living in, 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 a, in a congregation with one another. In fact, that kind of is the appearance here. They're disciples, not a congregation. They're disciples, not a synagogue, not a gathering. They're disciples. Do you know anybody who says, I'm a Christian, I just don't go to church? 
Oof. Let me tell you, in the book of Acts, how do you know you have the Holy Spirit? He's the spirit of unity. He's the spirit of community. He's the spirit of love. And how do you love if there's no other beside you? So Paul comes across some disciples. They're living their life. I believe in Jesus. I'm following the way. I received the baptism of repentance, John's repentance. I know the axe was coming, so I wanted to get safe. I believe in Jesus, but I don't have a church community. Have you received the Holy Spirit, Paul asks. You know, we've not even heard of the guy. So what does Paul do? And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So Paul comes to these disciples and he asks them, have you received the Holy Spirit? No, we haven't received the Holy Spirit. What's Paul's next step? You probably don't know the real Jesus. Because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three, they work together. They work inseparably. If you have Jesus, you have the Spirit. If you have Jesus, you have the Father. If you don't have the Father, you don't have Jesus. If you don't have the Spirit, You don't have Jesus. You cannot claim to follow Jesus and to say the Spirit has not entered my life. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our triune God acts inseparably. The God who promised everything in the Old Testament is the same God who fulfills it in the New Testament. The same God who promised to Adam and Eve, you will bear a child and he will crush the serpent is the same God who takes to himself human flesh and walks among us. The same God who walks among us, who goes to the cross, who suffers our damnation, is the same God who comes to you and dwells with you and empowers you and comforts you. And yes, we believe there are three persons as the children on Wednesday night know. Everyone, how many persons are there in God? That's right. There are three persons in one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But they are not different gods. They do not do their own thing. They do not act separate from one another, but like a candle lets off both light and heat. How can you have a candle without either one of those? They act together. And so, when Paul says, have you heard of the Holy Spirit? 
Have you received the Holy Spirit? And they say, we don't know him. Paul's response is, you probably don't know Jesus either. So he tells them about what Jesus has actually done. And when they hear what Jesus has actually done, they're baptized into the name of Jesus. And then they receive the Holy Spirit. And what do we remember about what Jesus tells his followers, what he tells his disciples? He says, go and baptize everyone in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. They receive the Holy Spirit, and there's about 12 of them. It seems to be almost like he's showing us, don't worry. The mission continues here as well. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles, and 12 here. Just because you got it wrong doesn't mean you can't believe. Here is the continuation of the ministry. And it doesn't rely on Paul, because Priscilla and Aquila are the one who taught Apollos. But it does rely on the confession. The confession of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All of them acting inseparably from one another. And we move on to our next test case. Paul has baptized these disciples and they continue to go around and they continue to, it seems, join a community because there's 12 of them all together. They continue to join in a church together. And then what happens? Paul finds the synagogue. And he entered the synagogue and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, Speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. If you want to say Tyrannosaurus Rex, that's okay. Um, the, the name is like tyrant, and it probably means that he was a hard teacher, but maybe a good one, you know? Like the, the one in high school that you knew you would get a B or a C with, but I mean, it was just so good. Maybe you didn't have anyone like that, and I apologize if that's true. But that's Tyrannus, the Tyrannosaurus Rex, the teacher. He, is, he has a hall set up in Ephesus. Now, remember, Ephesus is kind of like D.C., or, or uh, you might think of Yale at, at, uh, in, in New York. You've got this large city bustling with a bunch of people, and everybody's smart. They're wearing their suit and tie. They're ready. They have, uh, they have whiskey on the back shelf because it's that intense that they need it at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, right? That's D.C., or at least the show's in D.C. D.C. is a, and Ephesus, is an intense place. And these teachers would go around and they would travel. So Paul's like them. He would travel and they would find a place to set up shop. And education in the ancient world is different than ours, and so you would go and you would pay the teacher to sit in and listen at, at what he was saying. There's a, there's a temple, a temple to, to Artemis of the Ephesians, a temple to Artemis that's as big as a football field, bigger than a football field, in length and width, all right? And there's these pillars that set up every, uh, every so often. And there were teachers of Artemis that would go and they would stand between the pillars and they would set up and they would talk about anything that they were going to talk about, philosophy, talk about their religion, talk about how Artemis is the, the mother of the land and she's going to bring forth fruit for us. 
but there were other places in Ephesus as well with competing worldviews, with competing religions, competing ideologies. And there was a place for them as well. We might call it the agora, the marketplace, the place where Paul's going to go and he's going to see a bunch of people. And there's a man here, Tyrannus. And Tyrannus is wealthy because he's such a good teacher, even if he's hard. And the, the students that he would educate have to pay him an entrance fee. Can you imagine? Information not in the palm of your hand, but you actually have to go somewhere with your physical body, and you have to sit down and you have to pay hard-earned cash in order to just listen to a man talk. But that's what Tyrannus did. He was an educator. He would stand between pillars, not in the temple of Artemis, but in a similar location, and he would begin to, t- begin to teach. And again, just like we learned with the synagogue, usually the, the, uh, the person who owned it or the person who ran it, they would teach in the morning time. And people are a little more alert. And the afternoon time, they would give that to traveling preachers. And so Paul befriends Tyrannus, and he comes between these two pillars, and he begins to speak, begins to teach about Jesus. And Paul, he doesn't require an entrance fee. You don't have to pay money to listen to him. Because the gospel, the good news, isn't something you can purchase. But rather, he tells them about Jesus, the Messiah who has come to fulfill everything that God has declared from the beginning of time. And people come and they listen. And they hear the words that he says. They hear what Paul is teaching. And they know, or at least some of them do, this must be true. This must be true. You see, there were some in the synagogue that Paul was teaching, and they believed, and they followed Paul to the hall of Tyrannus, and they listened to what Paul continued to say. But everywhere that Paul goes, doesn't division arise? So those who were in the synagogue continued to become troubled at the words of Paul, continued to be troubled that Jesus was the supposed Messiah. They stayed in the synagogue. They stayed where Paul wasn't, because they didn't want to hear about the person of Jesus. But, G- but Paul goes to the hall of Tyrannus and teaches all of these people about who Jesus is. And so, we have our second test case. We have a synagogue over here. We have Paul here in the worldly place, in the marketplace, talking to anybody who will listen. And he is saying, Jesus has come for you. So if we turn back to our question, what is necessary for salvation. If we wonder in our minds, what is true here? Is it okay? Is it possible to simply believe that God did the things he did in the Old Testament? But when it comes to Jesus, to say, eh, not there. Well, that's not our struggle today, is it? Our struggle is the reverse. We want Jesus without the God of the Old Testament because he's scary. The God of the Old Testament, he let fire fall down from heaven and burn a city. The God of the Old Testament, he told Abraham, kill your son, your only son, the one that you love. That God is scary. He guided the the Israelites through the Red Sea, yes, but he let the waters wash over those who were chasing them. That God, I don't like him. 
Somebody stole a, a, a trinket from a war camp and he hid it under his tent. And God opened the ground and swallowed him up. You see, we don't struggle being a synagogue. We struggle being, I only want Jesus. Jesus is my boyfriend. He's the one who's kind and compassionate. He's the one who tells me to turn the other cheek. Well, at least he tells my enemies to do that, and I can do what I want. But Jesus is the one who cares, and he, he loves, and he just has this bleeding heart for you and for me. Jesus is that one. But what is necessary for salvation? What is actually true? What is actually true is that God, our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, they act inseparably from one another. When God created the heavens and the earth, he did it by his word. You know what scripture calls Jesus? The word. When God settled the earth and brought it into order, out of chaos, you know how he did it? When this word settled over the earth, the spirit hovered over the darkness. When God created man and woman, what did he say? Let us make man in our own image. When God, the Father, sent Jesus, did you know Jesus was willing? When Jesus walked to the cross, did you know that the Spirit was empowering him to make those steps? You can't unhitch Jesus from God. How many persons are there in God? There are three persons in one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they act inseparably from one another. So Paul teaches daily in the, in the hall of Tyrannus, and this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That's okay. That's okay. That's probably a good word too. All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That's our second test case. And now here is our third. Here's our third. Paul lived in Ephesus for about two years. Longest time, well, he lived longer in, in Ephesus, but longest time of ministry was here in Ephesus. In fact, he lived so long here, he wrote the book of 1 Corinthians, the letter of 1 Corinthians, while he was here in Ephesus. He sent it to the place he's been, the place where Apollos is. So if you open up the first few chapters of 1 Corinthians tonight, and you see Paul talking about Apollos, like, now you know, right? That's kind of cool. Um, and when you see him mention other people, like that he's riding along with Priscilla and Aquila, or he's riding with these other people, well, now you know, and that's kind of cool. The study through Acts has been uh, interesting and useful and helpful and good, in part just so that we understand the Bible better. 
But here, Paul is in Ephesus for two years, and he's teaching daily in the hall of training so that all of Asia is able to hear that Jesus is the Messiah. And at some point, Paul's finances run a little low, right? He had his money from, from, uh, from the churches before that they sent him. But now his finances are running a little low, so what does he do? Probably he picks up tent making again. Maybe he never stopped when he came to the city. So he gets back into the leather shop and he continues to work, but he daily teaches in the hall of Tyrannus every afternoon. Perhaps Tyrannus lets him have the morning session. And while he's working leather, he leaves, it, he leaves it to go to bed or he leaves it to go eat lunch or he leaves it to go teach at the hall. And Paul's work, Paul's words and work were so effective that people who heard him and people who touched him were healed of sickness and disease. The people who were afflicted with Holy Spirit, as we might say, demon-possessed, the people who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he cast out these demons. And they were no longer afflicted. They were in their right mind, and they were able to do the things that we think a normal human should be able to do. And so some people sneak into Paul's leather shop, and they steal his apron while he's away. They steal his, his, little, uh, his little cloth that polishes it up afterward. And they take it to their family members that are sick. And guess what? They lay the apron on top of them. They touch their, their weeping eyes. It works. They're fixed. They're healed. The people who have sickness and illness and disease and are demon-possessed, Paul's very clothing, the ones that he threatened to shake off, at the, or at, the, at the Corinthian synagogue, his very clothing brings the miracle of God. And so God continues to do miracles through Paul. Things that you and I, sometimes, we only believe happened back then. Sometimes that we think, oh, that's, that's not true anymore. We know how the world works now. We're smarter than that. And yet, maybe you've never seen something like this, but you want to slowly raise your hand if something unexplainable has happened to you before? Yeah. Something only God could have done. Maybe it was small or maybe it was big, but something you know that that doesn't just happen. But God did it. Because the miracle doesn't come from the clothing. It doesn't come from Paul. The miracle comes from, from God. From God who rules over the whole world. So people are taking these garments and they're healing people. And there's a couple of, a couple of guys in town. They call themselves the sons of Sceva. It may have been his actual sons, but more likely they were probably disciples. You know how the, the Christians are called the followers of the way? These are probably the sons of Sceva how Christians are sometimes called uh, the sons of God. These people are called the sons of Sceva. They're following their teacher, Sceva, or Seva, if you want to say that. And they, they listen to what he says and they teach. And Sceva is an exorcist. He specializes in going around, and when something is wrong with someone, he casts out a demon. And these seven sons, they, they go around, and they hear that Paul has been exercising demons in the name of Jesus. They think, oh, that's pretty useful. There's these tough demons over here. They haven't been really listening. 
We can use the name of Jesus to go take care of them. In fact, there was a statue in Ephesus where there was an inscription written at the bottom, and it it was magic. In fact, there were magicians all around. You think magicians don't exist today? Well, we just use a different tool, don't we? Because money talks. But there were magicians in Ephesus who had these secret incantations. They would keep them hidden. And they would go and they would use their incantations to cast out demons, and the demons would flee. It actually happened. And so these seven sons of Sceva, they hear that Paul is casting out demons by Jesus' name, and they say, well, let's try that. So they go to a house. This guy's demon-possessed, and they say, all right, demon, listen up. Usually they would ask for the demon's name. It seems that they don't hear. In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, get out of that man. So the demon turns to them and says, Jesus I know. Paul I'm acquainted with. I've heard about him. But who are you? Kind of scary. And the man that was possessed by this demon, that was afflicted by the spirit, jumps upon them. And he's so powerful that over seven grown men, he's able to wrestle them, strip them of their clothes, and he casts them out. So what do we learn here? What is true? What is necessary for salvation? Well, Paul comes, somebody who actually knows Jesus, and he demands that the demons leave, and it does, so that the name of Jesus is glorified, extolled, everywhere that people hear the story, the name of Jesus is lifted up, because the name of Jesus isn't an incantation. The name of Jesus isn't a word you could throw at the end of your prayer so you get what you want. The name of Jesus shows the power of God when he is really with you. The name of Jesus brings his presence along with you. And so what do we learn? These people, they had some kind of spirit. They had some spiritual experience and some power over the spirit, but as we've already learned, is that enough? Can't unhitch the Old Testament God from Jesus. You can't have Jesus all by himself. No, you need the God, the triune God who acts inseparably. The Father does what the Son does, what the Spirit does. And so Paul, who knows the triune God, the one who has sent the Messiah, the one who is the Messiah, the one who brings people to the Messiah, Paul, the preacher of the true God, casts the demon out so that everywhere that the name is heard, it is glorified, it is honored. The name of Jesus is extolled. So what is necessary for salvation? Yeah, you need to turn away from your sin. You need John's baptism, that's true. You can't continue living in sin. Yeah, you need Jesus. You need to believe 
who he is. But Jesus only makes sense because of what God did before. And yeah, what God is doing now, he's doing through the power of his spirit in the life of his church. What do you need for salvation? You need the triune God who acts inseparably. He's working for your good. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.